And welcome to all you folks at home and folks downstairs who are watching. It's a joy to be together. Why don't we take a moment before we dig into the word and let's have a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful for this time. We're grateful, as we said, for the opportunity to uh, to get to know uh, Josh Hamilton a bit as he uh, prepares to go and serve among unreached people groups. Father, we thank you that you have a heart for lost people because you rescued us. We were every one of us lost apart from Jesus Christ. We've had the opportunity to hear the gospel. We've responded and you've entrusted us with the mission, with the message of Jesus Christ. So thank you for giving us that privilege, the opportunity for us to be ambassadors of Jesus, to share with those around us, and also to partner with those who go to places where we cannot be. So we thank you for every one of the missionaries that we are partnering with around the world and now for this new partnership with Josh. We pray you'd uh, watch over him and and enable him as he uh, goes through these years of training that you would prepare him for a great ministry in the days ahead. Father, we thank you as well for your word and now the opportunity to open up your word to hear from you. And so we ask that you would help us to have uh, uh, attentive minds and willing hearts and that as you speak to us through your word, that we would be changed. So, Father, to that end, we commit ourselves and we ask your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. We're starting a new series today. Uh, the Chapel of the Lake turns 50 this year. It was in 1970 that a number of good-hearted folks decided that Lake St. Louis needed a church. There wasn't one. And so uh, they started meeting for services in late 1970 and then became officially chartered as a church in 1971. And then uh, they selected, as they started meeting, they selected a leader. They chose George McVicker, who was a sales rep for Bigelow Carpets. And uh, as uh, apparently he used to say it, they picked him because he was a good talker. However, after a few weeks of leading services, George was frustrated. Now, George died before I ever had an opportunity to meet him. He died before we came up here. But uh, his widow, Nancy, was our, served as our church secretary for about 20 years and became a good friend of mine. And, and she said uh, what happened was George ran out of religious things to say. And so he began a desperate search for what am I going to do? You know, another Sunday is coming and I don't know what to do. And, and uh, that quest for something to say led him to a place where God connected him with some folks where he heard for the first time and understood for the first time the gospel of grace, God, that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And when George heard that, he believed that. He trusted Jesus as his Savior. And he came back the next Sunday and with a new message to teach folks. And as well, George, from that point on, was a changed man. And then George committed himself to studying the Bible. And every week he would just study the Bible. And on Sunday he would come and just tell the folks what he learned. 
And through the years, as more people started coming to the church, a lot of other folks heard for the first time the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. And they became believers in Christ. And an awful lot of folks had changed lives through those years. The George pastored this church while serving with, working with Bigelow Carpets. He'd come in on Sunday and lay pastor the church for seven years. The chapel was comprised of people from a lot of different church backgrounds and a lot of different denominations. And, uh, but one core value that they, that they latched onto together was the desire to learn and to follow God's Word. The original chapel documents had actually very little to say about what they believed. But by 1982, a decade later, the chapel leaders realized it was time and it was necessary to be more definitive about what they believed. And so under the leadership of the chapel's first full-time pastor, who'd come a few years before that, Jim Kane, they sat down and they wanted to put together a statement of faith, or we could call it a doctrinal statement. Doctrine just means teaching, uh, a, a statement of the doctrine, the teachings, core teachings of the church. They believed that the chapel should be a place where there was unity around the absolute essentials of the gospel, of the essentials of the Christian faith, but that there was diversity in the things that are non-essential and where at all times we would be a people of charity, of love for one another. And so they aimed from the Scriptures to determine the essential core tenets, the essential core beliefs of the Christian faith and to officially declare those as the bedrock foundation of this church. And that document remains to this day as our statement of faith, our doctrinal statement. If you go through our uh, discovery class to become new members like uh, uh, Faith and Margot did, that's one of the things you, you go through, you read through. But I thought it especially fitting here in our 50th year that we take us all back through either for the first time or for a review to look at what it is that is at the core of our faith. These are not unique to the Chapel of the Lake. They are, they are held by, really, we would say, any um, evangelical, any church that truly is Christian. These are key beliefs. There are seven statements, and over the next seven weeks, we're going to take one of these statements each week and look at it and take it through the lens of Scripture and unpack it and... I hope you'll find it beneficial. Maybe for some of you, you're new believers in Christ or you're not even a believer in Christ yet. It's important to know what is it that is a believer in Christ. If you've been a believer in Christ for a hundred years, I hope you'll still find this exciting and beneficial. I did as I was preparing these lessons. Well, we begin with a statement about the Scriptures because what we believe about them... What we believe about the Scriptures is fundamental to everything else that we believe and everything else that we value and hold dear as the Chapel of the Lake. I don't know if you've noticed, but we live in a world that is adrift in a sea of relativism. The great value of our culture is everything is relative. 
and therefore tolerance. We're just tolerant of everything, which means we believe nothing absolutely. And people talk about your truth and my truth, not realizing that what they have done is denied truth, or maybe they deliberately have denied truth altogether, because what that is saying is that Opinion and truth are the same thing. If you can have your truth and I can have my truth, but they're different, that's not truth. That's opinion. Truth is true whether you believe it or not or whether I believe it or not. That is truth because it is true. How do you define truth? Actually, that was the question Pilate had of Jesus. You recall when Jesus was on trial before Pontius Pilate, He said, what is truth? And that's really the cry of our culture. What is truth? But their answer really, they're saying it kind of sarcastically or as a rhetorical question. In their mind, there is no truth. As a church and as Christians, we should all cut against the grain of the culture in saying there is truth. There is absolute truth. And we can know it. And that's really where this, what this first statement is all about. And let's read it together. It's here on the screen. Uh, let's read it. Join me. The Scriptures are God's revelation to man. They are God-inspired, inerrant, and authoritative in the original manuscripts. And then under that, there are three Scripture passages uh, for you to Uh, go back and read through and check out. We're going to read those as well this morning. To unpack that statement and get really what's behind it and what's all through that statement, I'm going to just break it down and call our attention to, to six words or six phrases that are here in that little statement. The first thing you'll notice is it says, The Scriptures. And when it says the Scriptures, what do we mean by that? Well, the word Scripture simply means something that is written. But in specific, we mean the Scriptures to refer to the written Word of God. The the body of writings that is the Word of God. We use sometimes the word Bible. The word Bible is not in the Bible. The word Bible is a Greek word, though, biblios, and we just brought it over into English. And it's a word that simply means book or scroll. And so when we use the word Bible, we're talking about the book, the book of God's writings. But the word uh, Scripture is used in the Scriptures to describe the writings of God. Use it especially in the New Testament. Use it quite often referring to the Old Testament as the Scriptures. Or it says, it is written, referring to the Old Testament Scriptures. It also, though, in the New Testament, in at least a couple of the places, is used to refer not only to the Old Testament, but the New. For example, in, in uh, Peter's letter, First Peter, he talks about the writings of Paul, which he says some people twist and distort like they do the rest of the Scriptures, meaning the Old Testament. So he takes the Old and New, says the writings of Paul are Scripture as well. And so we use the word Scripture referring to the Bible, the Word of God. The Scriptures, and and by the way, that is the 66 books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that make up our Bible. 
So that's what we mean when we say the Scriptures. The Scriptures are, we say, the next little phrase here, God's revelation. God's revelation to man. Every single day, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, Every single day, the very existence of the creation around us, of the world and everything in it, of the universe and everything out there, the very existence of that screams out, there is a creator. It is really obvious whether you look at the the vastness and the complexity of the universe, or whether you look at the intricacy and the complexity of a single cell, or whether you look at the complexity of the atom, much less when you look at just the glory of water and little fuzzy critters running around your yard that eat your plants, and they're, but they're really pretty cool, the squirrels and other rodents out in your yard. and Everything screams out, there is an awesome creator, doesn't it? That's what Psalm 19 says. Psalm 19 verses 1 and 2 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. It goes on, there are no words, there is no language. This voice is not heard, but it still screams out. There's a Creator. There's a Creator. People have to work really hard to deny a Creator. Our society tries real hard, doesn't it? Our culture tries very hard to deny a Creator. But deep down, I think most everybody knows, yeah, there is. There's a Creator. The universe declares His majesty. It declares His power. It declares His greatness. Yet, we cannot see God. We cannot know Him through the creation. We can know some things about Him, Paul says in Romans 1. We can know of His majesty. We can know of His power, His greatness. But we can't know Him personally and we can't know a lot of detail about Him. There is no way that we could know God unless the infinite sovereign God reaches down to us and reveals Himself to us. And that is what this says. The Scriptures are God's revelation to man. God has chosen and taken the initiative to communicate to us. And He has communicated to us through His Word, which He has given to us through the instruments, through people. God has revealed Himself to us Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 21, which is one of those three passages there with our statement, it says this, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spake from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Scriptures that we have are the work of God working through men to give to us His Word. It's not men that thought it up, and it was not men that even asked for it. It was God who took the initiative. And so we believe that the Scriptures are, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says in our next phrase here, they are inspired of God. 
Actually, 2 Timothy 3.16, one of the, again, the, one of those passages there on the screen says this, all scripture is breathed out. That's what inspired means. It is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. The scriptures are God-breathed, God-inspired. What that means is that what we have in the scriptures is that was produced by human authors is exactly what God wanted us to have. It's what He wanted us to hear. A theological term that we will often use to define that a little more narrowly because critics are always lawyers. You know, they, they try to find loopholes and So a little more definition on this. The Scriptures are inspired by God, and we talk about the verbal inspiration of Scriptures. What that means is that when when God inspired the Scriptures, He didn't uh, reach down to a man and inspire a man with some lofty ideas and some lofty thoughts, and then He went and jotted down some of those thoughts in His own words and you know, they're just kind of so that the thoughts, the ideas are inspired. That's not what God did. If you read carefully in the scripture, it says that God didn't, it doesn't say he inspired the man. It says he inspired the scriptures. It is the very words of the scripture that are inspired. That's what verbal inspiration means. The, the verbal, the words are inspired. So we believe that every word of the Scripture is inspired by God. Jesus believed that. You might recall, I think it's in Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus is in the temple and the the religious leaders are testing him. They're trying to trip him up. And the Sadducees have just presented him with a scenario and they want to show Jesus, they want to get Jesus to look ridiculous. And they're saying that, because the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. And Jesus builds his whole argument on not just one word, even on the very tense of a word. What he says is to these Sadducees, he says, you err and you do not know the Scripture. Doesn't it say in the Scripture, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't say, I was. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead... God was their God. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive, God is their God. That's the point. He builds it on the, on the tense of a word. And you see, we believe, as Jesus did, that the very words of Scripture are inspired. So we believe in the verbal inspiration of Scripture. We also believe in the plenary inspiration, another theological term, which means simply means everything or all. So that all of the Scripture, all of the Bible, all of it is inspired by God. It's not this chapter is, this chapter isn't. You know, a number of years ago, actually it was almost a half a century ago, back in the early 70s, there were a bunch of scholars who all got together and they called it the Jesus Seminar. And they were going through the Gospels and they were trying to figure out the true words of Jesus and separate those words from what weren't. And so all they did was they looked at and they said, okay, here's what says Jesus said this. How many of you think Jesus said this? Well, you know, and they'd take a vote and if they got enough, they'd say, okay, well, this, these are the true words of Jesus. And if, oh, not enough votes. Okay, these aren't. Who are they to say anything? That's not, that's not the way the scripture is. It is all or nothing. It is either all God's word or none of it is. 
So the Scriptures are inspired of God. And because we believe that the Scriptures are the very words of the Holy God, then we also believe that they are therefore, the next word here, they are inerrant. Inerrant simply means they are without error. Proverbs chapter 30 verse 5 says this, Every word of God proves true. You can find basically that same phrase a couple of other times in the Psalms. Every word of God proves true. That means that you don't find one little, oops, that was a, that didn't mean to leave that in there. God, oops, I made a mistake there. No, nope, nope. every bit of it's true. This applies, by the way, not only to the parts where the Bible speaks about spiritual matters. It's not just where it talks about, you know, religious things. It applies to everything it says. Even when it talks about histories and geographies and genealogies, it is true, it is correct, it is without error. Matter of fact, many archaeologists through the years have noted the accuracy of Scripture. One of them stated it this way, a fellow named Dr. Clifford Wilson, who just died a couple of years ago, he was, for some time, he was the head of the Australian Institute of Archaeology. He said, I know of no finding in archaeology that's properly confirmed, which is in opposition to the Scriptures. The Bible is the most accurate history textbook the world has ever seen. Those are big words coming from an archaeologist. By the way, he doesn't say that you will never read on Time magazine or any other magazines you pick up, that you will never read someone saying, there was an archaeological discovery over, you know, wherever, and it proves the Bible is wrong. Because I've read headlines like that. Maybe you have too. You know what happens over the time? Is that they find out that, oh, well, we were wrong. The Bible wasn't. Time and time again, over the last few centuries, that archaeology has been a serious study. It has done everything to verify and attest to the accuracy of the Scripture rather than to call it into question. That's as it should be. Because if we are going to believe the Bible about all kinds of things that we cannot see, that we cannot test, that we cannot observe, then we need to see that it is accurate in the things that can be tested and the things that can be seen and the things that can be investigated. The next statement in this, well, actually not the next one. I'm going to skip to the last one. The notice that we have in there that it says, in the original manuscripts. The Bible is inspired by God and it is without error. It is without error in the original manuscripts. That's an important thing to say. We do not say that the Bible that you may be holding in your hands right now is without error. For one thing, we are, most of us here are probably reading in English. The Bible was not written in English. It was written, most of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, some parts in Aramaic, and the New Testament in Greek. We are reading translations. And if you pick up any two or three different translations of the Scripture, you will notice that there are differences between them. And some translations are better than others, and some are better in this part, and some are better than that part. That's because translation is not an exact science. 
And so we can expect that our English translation is not without error. But another thing is that that you may or may not know when the authors of Scripture wrote the different books of the Bible that we today do not have the original copy that any of them wrote, not for a single book of the Bible. What we have and the translations we have are made from copies of copies of copies that were made and passed down over the centuries and millennia. So that raises perhaps in your mind, if you've never thought of that before, how do we know that what we have today is what they wrote? And that's a very good question. Good news. There are literally tens of thousands of ancient manuscripts of Bible texts. For, for us to take and for scholars to take and to compare. By the way, compared to any other ancient writings, there are exponentially more Bible manuscripts than of any other ancient writings. Other ancient writings, which everybody says, oh yeah, we have, you know, Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. Yeah, we've got the, (laughs) we have exactly what he wrote. You know, we've got, I think it's a half dozen manuscripts. And none of them within a thousand years. So the manuscripts of the Bible that we have, we can get back, in the case of the New Testament, within a hundred years of the original writings. And by the way, if you get past the manuscripts of the New Testament, we have the sermon notes from the pastors of the day, uh, which quote Scripture. And you can piece together the entire New Testament from sermon notes. We have those to compare. And over the last several hundred years... The Scriptures have been scrutinized meticulously by scholars and critics, many of them very unfriendly to the Scriptures. And they've gone looking to find, you know, where can we find the problems here? The result is that when you put it all together, we can be confident that that, um, there are really very few places in the biblical text that where there are questions about what's the right thing here. Actually, it's down to about 1% of the text. Most of those differences are things like a difference in spelling. We know how even in English, differences in spelling have changed over just the last century. Certain words are spelled differently today than they were 100 years ago. So that's not exactly unusual or, or shocking. There are differences maybe in word endings or differences in a word order. So this word in one text is first and this word in the other one is second. That kind, those kind of differences, they're very minor and don't affect the meaning at all. In the places where it does affect the meaning, again, they are, they are very minor. None of them affect any major Bible teaching, major Bible doctrine. Again, that word teaching or doctrine. And... Whenever there are there is something like that where it's calling into question something that might be of significance, basically every modern Bible translation out there has a footnote that says some manuscripts read, some manuscripts say this. And you can you can know where they are. They're not hidden in a dark corner somewhere, the dirty secret of Christianity. The things they're hiding from you and don't want you to know. Okay? It's not that way at all. Everything is done out in the open. 
Bottom line, we can have a very high confidence that what we have today is what was originally written. That is good news. That really does not surprise me at all. Because Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. In other words, God is at work preserving His Word, protecting it. How else do we account for the fact that over millennia it has been been transmitted? Uh, I don't have time to go into the accuracy and the wonders when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and how they bridged over a thousand years of gap between manuscript and discovered. The changes are minuscule. Wonderful stuff. We can be sure what we have is what was written, but it's not an accident. It's because God is protecting His Word. And what we can be assured of in that is that everything God says will be done. His Word is another word that's not in our doctrinal statement, but probably could be or should be, is the word that they are infallible. The Scriptures will not fail. Everything God says will will come to pass. This is a sure foundation. That's why it's stone number one as it is in the chapel's statement of faith. One last word, and that is the word authoritative. We consider the Word of God authoritative. The Bible is the supreme authority for our teaching, for our knowledge, and for our practice. We join with the the great saints and the great cry during the time of the Reformation when the Reformation reacted to other authorities that were claiming to speak for what the church should do and think and believe. And they said, sola scriptura, only Scripture is our authority. We join with that. When we have a question, when we're faced with a question as a church about what we should believe about something, when we are faced with a question about how we should worship or how we should do this or do that, when we're faced with a question about what it is that we are, you know, what our priorities should be as a church, when we're faced with a question about how to address some contemporary issue, we don't look to a denomination, we don't look to a person, we certainly don't look to the whims and the, and the approval and the feelings of the culture around us. We turn to the Word of God and ask, does God have something to say about this? This is our authority. And there you have it. That is statement number one from our doctrinal statement, our statement of faith. Most of you already knew that's what we believe as a church. So I want to take it now and I want to try to put some feet on it. I want to take this and put some shoe leather on it. I want to turn it into something Uh, that is unmistakably practical. You see, because we have a tendency to hear something like this and we go into school mode. You remember school mode, most of you, when you're back there, a lot of you are still there. I pity you, I'm sorry. You know how it is in school. You sit there in class and, and you learn all this stuff and you go, yeah, I'll never, you know, I'll never use this again. Quadratic equations, yeah, whatever. 
and you put it in a file drawer somewhere in the back of your mind, never to be seen again after you graduate. And we do that, and we come to something like this, and we tend to label it, oh, here we go, I go on to Theology 101. It goes over here in these file drawers, and pff, there we go, it's gone. But that's not what this is intended to do. Matter of fact, Dwight L. Moody, great uh, evangelist and preacher of a century and a half ago, Dwight L. Moody said of these verses, well, I didn't even say what these verses are. I'm going to put this verse back up here. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We read verse 16. I'm adding verse 17. He said of these verses, These are not here for our information. These are here for our transformation. Let's read these verses together. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is to be practical, not just intellectual. It is practical. You know, you know, a lot of us, particularly around, um, around the end of December and 1st of January, a lot of us get informed about exercise equipment. Because we start thinking, you know, it's time to start working on the physique again, work off those holiday pounds. So we go and we, we start doing our research on all the latest, you know, and the best uh, exercise equipment. We may even go out and buy one. So we buy a NordaTrack elliptical thing, you know, or we buy a Peloton, or we buy, a, a, you know, the little total body workout gym, or we buy the little ab trainer thing or whatever, and we get it, and we can get all the information, we can even buy all the equipment, and it does us absolutely no good in transforming our body if we don't use it, right? How many of us have exercise equipment gathering dust? I won't make you raise your hand. Okay, <laughs> that was it. I don't want to embarrass everybody. But it's sitting there and our bodies still look like they used to before we bought the stuff. Don't do that with this. You notice that the first, what is it, four words are the theology we looked at. Everything else there is practical. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And here it is. It's possible. It's useful. Four things. It's useful for, what's the first one there? It's useful for teaching. Teaching. The Scriptures teach us. What they teach us is truth. And we need truth. This last week, I, was, I, I had to go somewhere I had never been before uh, down in Chesterfield. And I was trying to, as well, I'm trying to think about several things, including this message. And I, and I uh, had to run out the door and I just quickly entered it in the phone. And I'm going to follow the directions. I never do that because I hate that little voice. Speaking to me, you know, in four miles, turn, you know, move into the right line. I just hate that. So I usually look it up, look at the direction. Anyway, I did that. I'm listening to the thing because I just needed it to yell at me, turn now! Okay. Because I was daydreaming and thinking of other things. So I followed the directions and I stop at where it tells me and I look up and I'm supposed to be at a pharmacy and I'm in front of somebody's townhouse. Now maybe they sold drugs in there. I don't know. But I was not where I was supposed to be. You know, bad information is at best a waste. Bad information can be dangerous. It can even be deadly. 
But the Bible, the Scripture, teaches us and it teaches us truth, how we need truth, especially in this day and time when people deny that truth even exists. Jesus said, of course, you will know the truth and what? The truth will make you free. We need truth. That's why we encourage you. Read the Bible on your own. Dig into it. If you're not already reading, I encourage you, grab the Scripture reading plan out in the foyer. just takes you through like a chapter a day. This year, going through the Old Testament history and Psalms and Proverbs. Find some way where you're reading at least a little bit every day. Get it into your heart and your mind and your life. Get involved in a Bible study. Besides coming to church, I encourage you, go to Sunday school, Sunday morning. Get involved in a home group or go to a men's Bible study or women's Bible study or go to youth group or, or go somewhere. Go to um, Bible study fellowship. That's not part of our stuff here at church. It's a great uh, Bible study group. Listen to KSIV radio during the day if you can. Great teaching on there. Learn God's Word. We need that. Second thing here. That God's Word, the Scriptures, are profitable for reproof. That word reproof means to expose, to expose wrongdoing, to expose sin. The problem is we tend to, we tend to judge ourselves, comparing ourselves to other people. And we go, man, I'm not as bad as they are. I'm doing really good. It's when we hold up the mirror of God's Word and we say, oh, oh, you know, never knew that was a sin. Never thought about that. We need God's truth speaking to us saying, hey, have you thought about this one? This needs fixing. God's Word exposes our sin. It is, Hebrews 4 says, a, a surgeon's scalpel that goes in between the joints and marrow exposes the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Well, we need for God's Word to transform us. We need to respond to the reproof, to the exposure of God's Word uh, as it exposes our sin. Thirdly, it says it's profitable for correction. The words of God work in us to correct us, to correct wrongdoing. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25 says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end, or in the end, it leads to death. Have you ever done something that just seemed like the right thing to do, and afterwards you realize that was a really bad idea? That's the way, that's our thinking. And even the times where we, you know, all the times we think we're doing it right, and we've got it wrong. It's the Word of God that says, no, that's not it. The antidote we find over another proverb, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, where it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. If you want to not end up following all the, you know, the, the wrong twisty turns and the roundabouts and ending up in the wrong place, in the dangerous spot, in the wrong spot, You need to be listening to the right GPS, not your own little ideas of what you think is right. We need God's way. It'll spare us an awful lot of trouble. It will correct wrong thinking and wrong acting, wrong living. Lastly, the fourth thing it says, it's useful for training in righteousness. The Scriptures will 
train us in not only what not to do, but it will train us in what we need to do. It will replace wrong behavior. Help us replace wrong behavior with right behavior. Just a quick word of personal testimony. It's not in my notes. and I probably shouldn't add this because I don't want to go late. But I just, when I was a young man, I had a horrible temper. I had an anger problem. And I'm embarrassed to say, I mean, I, I treated my mom horribly. I was, I was 17 years old uh, and I claimed to be a Christian. I went to church, everything, but, but I, was, I just had a horrible temper. And one day I was convicted as I was probably sitting in church listening to the pastor and I was going, man, you know, that's just so wrong. But I didn't know what to do. It was just ingrained deep in me. And I didn't know what else to do, but... I had been reading through Proverbs. And I realized, you know, there's an awful lot of Proverbs that talk about anger. So then I started going through the Bible to find all the verses I could that talked about anger. And I took, some of, I took them and I wrote them out on three by five cards. And then I carried them around with me. And when I was driving, I'd put them on the, the dashboard. So when I stopped somewhere, I could pick one up and look at it. And I put those things to memory. Better he who rules his Spirit than he who rules a city. It's better to have control of your temper than be a king. Do not spend time with an angry man. There is more hope for a fool than for him. Let me tell you, folks, I put those things to memory over the years. Be angry and do not sin, Ephesians chapter 4. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And you know what God did? He changed me. It's not that I have never gotten angry and sinned with my anger since. I have on occasion. But I've heard my family say of me that I'm a patient man. I'm always amazed by that. That's the grace of God and the transforming power of His inspired Word to change us from the inside out. Get that. So what's the purpose in all of this? One last thing, verse 17. Because He gives us the goal. He gives us what... God is aiming at in all of this. He's wanting us to know that His Word is inspired so that we use it and allow it to teach us and to reprove us and to correct us and to train us so that, He says, the notice verse 17, the man of God, not the boy, the man. I say it's to mature us. So the man of God, He wants to grow us up. The man of God may be, it says, complete, comma, equipped, or actually more, a little more literally from the, the Greek there, to be complete, completely equipped <laughs> is really what it says. To be complete, completely equipped. God wants to prepare you, to equip you so that he can mobilize you, mobilize us for every good work. In other words... What God wants to do is to grow you, you and I up and through His Word to grow us up, to equip us so that we can do and be everything that He made us to be, everything He designed and created you to be. You know, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. We looked at that verse last week. You know the next verse? For we are His workmanship in Christ Jesus, created for good works, 
which God prepared in advance for us to do. Before you were ever born, before the world was ever made, God designed works for you to do and you to do those works and works for me to do and me to do those works. How do we ever get to do and be what God wanted us to be? The process is here through His Word. You see how practical this is? It's not just cold, dead theology. God has given to us as a great gift His living, active Word which He breathed life into. And as we take it in, He breathes new life into us. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this this, this marvelous truth so much in those few words. And we've looked at just the, scratched the surface of the, the Scriptures that deal with this subject. But what we see is You have indeed given us a great thing, the Word of God. May we not do what most of us have done so often, We take this great gift and we leave it sitting in the corner, unwrapped or uh, maybe, maybe even still wrapped up. Maybe it's unwrapped but just sitting gathering dust. It's forgotten amidst all the busyness and all the clutter and all the noise in our lives. May we see that you have given this to us so that we can know you. So we can know who you are, so we can fellowship with you more. You've given it to us so that not only can we know you, but your Spirit uses your Word to change us and remake us so that we actually end up becoming like you. We become conformed, as the Scripture says, into the image of your dear Son. We become people who look like our Savior, Jesus in our character, in the way that we treat our husband, our wife, in the way that we love our neighbor. Oh, Father, may we be a people who become known as many of our ancestors in the faith have been called by by, uh, their neighbors and by folks around them. They have called us people of the book. May we be so changed by Your Word that that's what people call us. Oh yeah. There are people who are always studying and reading that book. There are people of the book. Father, this we ask for our good and for Your glory. In Jesus' name.